Welcome back to a very special season of Pause and Listen, a podcast from Pause. This season is called In a Mother's Mind. It aims to raise awareness about the mental health experiences and needs of women who have had children removed from their care. It was created by a group of five Pause graduates who have had experience of having children removed from their care. We wanted to make this podcast series to shed light on a subject that isn't normally spoken about. In each episode, we're going to talk about an issue that affects our lives. For those of you listening for the first time, I'm Helena. I am a pause graduate and I've been a part of Pause Advisory Board for a year now, and I will be your host for the series. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the lack of support available for women who have had children removed from their care. We're going to be joined by Pause trustee Vicky Nash, who works with a mental health charity Mind, and clinical psychologist Nicola Labouchain. First, let's hear from Vicky Nash, who has been interviewed by Vanessa. Hi, I'm Vanessa. I'm a POS graduate and I am on the POS advisory group. Graduated from POS in 2020. And today I'll be talking to Vicky Nash. So, Vicky, could you tell us about yourself and what your area of expertise is, please? I'm Vicky and I'm one of the POS trustees, but in my day job, I also work for the mental health charity Mind. I lead our policy and campaigning and public affairs work to make sure that people with mental health problems get support and respect. So I've been trying to influence the mental health services and the mental health system and government policy on that for over a decade now. What gaps do you think in service provisions for women who have had children removed from their care? In short, there's lots. Mental health services overall, they're in a fairly fragile state. We've had decades of underfunding, so it's meant that for years and years and years, mental health was such a Cinderella service compared to other parts of the system. Over the last few years, we've had more funding going in, but we're still trying to play catch up. And the pandemic has had a really negative impact on the services and the availability. So we've got about a million and a half people that are on a waiting list to access mental health services. And then you've got a further 8 million people that could really benefit from accessing treatment, but they can't even get on to the waiting list so you can start to see the scale of the challenge and then when you think about women that have been going through care proceedings or have had their children removed or at risk of having their children removed they often have a lot of complex needs and the system can't really cope with any level of complexity so women are often getting pushed all around and not getting the help where they need it. They're facing a number of different challenges, whether they're faced violence or trauma, living in poverty. The services just can't really cope with that level of need. And so it's often the case that women have fallen through these gaps. It's only really once they're having their children removed that someone will come along and say, oh, actually, you've got a diagnosis of a mental health problem or in some cases, three, four, five diagnoses. And this is the first time that a lot of women will ever have had that kind of connection with services. And they're left with all of these labels and not really sure what to do with it because the services don't automatically follow through. And that's what the Paul's report that looked into this recently really highlighted. I know that funding is a major thing. Do you think that there should be a certain area for women who lose the children, that social care should actually put that referral in? I can't see how that's not possible because women will be known 
either to the NHS or to social services. So we know how many women we're talking about here and we know where they are. The very least that we can do is to provide the wraparound support to care for that individual after such a traumatic incident has occurred. If you get that support in, that can really help to transform that woman's life. And it might be that they're able to live a better life, have more opportunities, have maybe some more contact with their children, even if the children don't come back. It's about giving people hope and a chance and the right support so that they can become whatever they're able to become. I can't see how we're not doing that already in these most brutal of circumstances for these women. It's a moral obligation to do that as well as economics-wise. It makes so much sense. Why do you think it's important to hear from people with lived experience when it comes to the mental health issues? There's a few reasons why it's really important that we hear people's experiences. One is so that we really understand what's happening on the ground. We understand what's happening to people in real life because sometimes there's a disconnect between what is talked about at national level and by politicians and policymakers. It's really important that it acts as a reality check to what might be being spoken about at national level. The other reason why it's really important that we hear from people's own experiences is that you're often best placed to talk about the changes that need to happen. You can often see the solutions in a much clearer way than some people tied up in the system. There's also a really important point of being able to speak truth to power. Particularly when it comes to mental health, there's a real power imbalance. We hear this lots from people with mental health problems that they're often ignored or they're not heard by professionals or they're not listened to or they're not believed. And that's why the power of people talking about their own experiences and the stories and the things that they have gone through helps to balance out that power dynamic With the current situation that's going on with cost of living and everything, do you think it's going to be harder for mental health organisations to help people, particularly women who've lost their children? It's a really good question. I suppose it comes off the back of the COVID pandemic as well. How did services and how did organisations like mine cope during that time? There was a recognition about the value of making sure people could pick up the phone to someone and a phone call would be answered that you could pop into your local mind and access some support. What we've seen with the cost of living is over the last year, a really sharp increase in the number of calls that we take from our information line about people worried about the cost of living crisis and the impact it's having. And we know that there's a relationship between mental health and poverty. So the two things go hand in hand. If you've got mental health problems, you're more likely to be living in poverty. And if you're living in poverty, you're more likely to develop a mental health problem. So when you talk of cost of living, there is a really strong mental health element to that crisis. And at the moment, we're trying to (laughs) really press government to recognise that and to take the lessons from the pandemic, because they didn't really acknowledge the mental health impact of COVID until much further down the line. So we're just trying to avoid them repeating that mistake. It's really taken a toll on people's mental health, that constant worrying about have you got enough money to live with, to feed yourself, to be able to turn the heating on, those really basic essentials. We just don't know whether that support's going to come from government to help people, but we'll carry on doing what we can to help navigate them to the support they need um, to provide really good face-to-face services in their local area. Or we have an online peer support community for people that 
that might not be an option for or they feel better suited to working in online communities. So there's definitely help out there, both the financial aspects of the cost of living crisis, but also the mental health aspect and the toll that that takes on our mental health when you're constantly in having to worry about how you make ends meet and whether you've got enough money to live on. And actually, that's why one of the biggest calls that we've got at the moment is about increasing the rate of benefits to at least in line with inflation. We've already seen real terms cuts to benefits because they've been frozen. The benefit system is our safety net. And what COVID showed us was that we're only one or two steps away from any of us from really needing that extra support and extra help. So there is a role for governments play in being able to support people through this time they have to step up. What messages would you give women who are in this situation? The first message is you're not alone because quite often it makes you feel like is it something that I've done wrong and that's not the case. There will be other women that will be going through a similar situation to you. The other message is that help is out there even if it's not formal If you're on a waiting list for mental health treatment or you're struggling to get that help there is also more peer support or wraparound support that lots of voluntary organisations provide that you might be able to tap into. Quite often people have just ended up with this bunch of diagnoses and they don't actually know what any of that means. We run an information line that's actually a wealth of information out there to try to help you understand what you might be experiencing and they can signpost you to where other forms of help might be available. So you're not alone. There is help out there starting to get your head around what mental health is and how it might be affecting you and where you might be able to get support. Thank you for answering my questions and hopefully it's going to help other women listening to the podcast. Now we're going to hear from Nicola, who has been interviewed by Lauren, who is also a postgraduate. Hi, my name's Lauren. I'm part of the PAWS advisory group and I'm here with Nicola today. I'm going to be asking her some questions about the lack of mental health support available to women who have had children removed from their care. Good morning, Nicola. Hello, Lauren. Thank you so much for inviting me today. And thank you for joining us. Can you tell me a bit about yourself? So my name is Nicola Labashain. I'm a consultant clinical psychologist and I manage a service that provides long-term intensive mental health care and support for parents with complex needs and their children who've been identified as being on the edge of care. And the aim of the service I provide is to keep children with their parents so that they can parent them safely to adulthood. And as part of that, we offer mental health support in the form of group psychotherapy, individual psychotherapy and parent-child psychotherapy. And it's a multi-family unit. So we have up to seven families at any one point who are forming a community together to manage their mental health difficulties, but also working on the way in which this can impact on parenting. Parenting is a relentless, difficult anxiety-provoking, maddening process for all parents. And it is made even more so when there are mental health issues and difficulties that have largely not received the help that they need. That sounds really amazing, especially having something that can help and support women rather than being frightened of mental health. What impact 
does it have on parents and their mental health when a decision is made in care proceedings? Well, I think it's catastrophic. We're working with parents who have experienced mental health difficulties themselves. And it's often that parents whose children are removed have themselves experienced what we call complex relational trauma. And what I mean by that is parents who have experienced years of childhood neglect or difficult parenting from their own parenting, maybe abuse. And that is often the case that parents don't get the treatment that they need for that. So they struggle. They're struggling with anxiety, with depression. Sometimes they might feel suicidal. They may have used substances like alcohol, drugs, just in order to help them manage in the absence of any support. And then you put on top of that one of the most catastrophic traumas that a parent can experience, which is the removal of their child. What parents then experience is deep abiding loss. There is no support. And then people feel incredibly lonely and isolated and terribly ashamed and guilty. One of the dangers that I have experienced working with the women that have been referred to my unit is that they feel they've got nothing left to lose anymore. So if you've got nothing left to lose, you may not take care of yourself at all because you don't think you are valuable. Then you may engage in incredibly risky behavior because you don't value who you are and what you might have to offer. And I can't really overstate my opinion is that the removal of a child is catastrophic. Parents are left with trauma that they experienced many years ago, the loss the anxiety, the depression, the feelings of powerlessness that just can't impact the decision-making of the court. And when you feel powerless, you feel you have no agency or autonomy. And this can lead to a real exacerbation of existing mental health difficulties. It's quite beautiful how you speak as part in these women. It's really empowering to hear how you have a general care for these women. Where do you think the gaps in support are for women who've had their children removed from their care? I was thinking about this, Lauren, and I thought, actually, it's even before the children are removed that the support is woeful. It should be mandatory that women have a professional advocate to help them navigate this incredibly arcane system of family courts. An advocate who understands the processes that these women are having to negotiate on a daily basis, who understand reports. I can't tell you how many women will say, I haven't ever read the psychiatrist report, because they're long and they're difficult to understand. Women are expected to go and sit in a court process, which is extraordinarily formal, and then they have to maintain and contain their emotions. I think that's too much to ask. There should be alongside some sort of counselling, some sort of acknowledgement. How are you going to get through this next bit? What are the emotions you might be expected to feel? How can we help you to manage them? It's extraordinarily painful to have other people telling you just how bad you are. People fighting over you as if you don't exist in that courtroom. Once 
the decision has been made, there should be immediate support. Too often, women are then just left on their own. And what the courts were saying is, look, our priority is the child. And I have no problem with that. Children should be a priority. But we also know there's no such thing as a baby. There is a mother and a baby. There should be built-in support from the moment those parents leave the courtroom, that they have a space and they have time to be able to start to process this trauma. Direct referrals into services who are set up in a specialist way to start to help these parents process these feelings and loss would be hugely important had there been support right from the word go. Yeah. The outcome may not have been a child being removed at all. What does effective mental health support for women who have had their children removed from their care look like to you? And what is your understanding of it? You will be unsurprised to hear me say it should be trauma-informed. But I don't just mean trauma-informed so that professionals and practitioners understand how to work with trauma I think it needs to be a bit specialised. Practitioners who are good at their jobs can be trained to understand the specific trauma of a child being removed from one's care and how to incorporate that throughout any kind of specialist mental health work that is carried out. Now, when I talk about complex relational trauma, that tends to give rise to complex emotional needs. You may have heard complex emotional needs being described as personality disorder. My specialism has been for many years working with people with personality disorder. I find it an uncomfortable diagnosis. I think people don't really understand what it means. It stigmatizes people. It makes them feel bad about themselves. So I don't like using personality disorder anymore. What I say is complex emotional needs. We know that if you've experienced complex relational trauma, you probably haven't had the experience of consistent parental figures to help you manage your feelings, to help you have safe relationships, to help you to be able to think about your feelings and reflect on your feelings. And if you haven't had that, that can have a real impact on your ability to parent. And so I think there ought to be professionals who specialize in working with complex relational trauma and what happens as adults. You need professionals in a system who understand that engaging with mental health services is difficult and painful and traumatic for people who may not trust professionals. Many people don't feel that professionals are there to support and care for them and that can be trustworthy and they're not corrupt and they're not trying to bring you down or punish you. One has to have a skilled workforce starting to build trusting relationships and not immediately discharging someone because they haven't turned up, going and finding out why, trying to understand ways of engaging them. And that's why Pause is an organization that I value very highly Pause gets that it's hard to engage and doesn't just wash their hands of you. Pause says, well, how can I make my service more accessible rather than putting all the focus on the woman to have to jump through hoops that feel insurmountable because of the pain that they've experienced themselves? And it makes me upset that we have long waiting lists. These are women who've learned how to survive, who are resilient, 
who are just about able to manage their trauma to an extent that sadly sometimes mental health services will say, no, you don't meet our threshold. So I suppose it goes back to skilled professionals who understand the impact of trauma on women and to intervene quickly. Through experience, I do feel like what you said is totally correct. It's hard finding counselling or therapists that will take you on. And sometimes they don't think that you fit the criteria. So then you're left, left not knowing where to go, what to do, and you have to try and find your own way to survive. It's one of my bugbears that professionals alienate themselves from the people who really need their service. People don't understand how to navigate their way through mental health services. They don't understand the different types of therapeutic models, but they're left to try and manage that on their own. Alongside another thing that really annoys me is the fact that psychiatrists or psychologists may do assessments within the context of court proceedings and say, this woman needs this, 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 and this, except it's not available in that woman's area. Or if it is available, there's an 18-month waiting list. Mm. And that woman has not been given the chance to actually get the help they need for themselves, but also in order to be able to parent their children. Is mental health really a reason for you to not be a mother, to not parent your child, for you to be abandoned from your babies? Well, I think and believe very strongly that mental health should have no bearing on whether you should be allowed to parent a child. Having said that, I'm also very clear that mental health can impact on a child's life. So what my view would be is that we offer help to parents. We say mental health, what does that actually mean for you? Where does it come from? How does it affect you? How does it affect your parenting? And how can we help? So that the mother and the children get the best chance in order to be together and in order to be able to live the lives that they really want for themselves. Oh, thank you so much, Nicola. It's overwhelming how beautifully we speak and I'm honoured for you to join me today. The honour is all mine. Thank you so much to Vicky and Nicola for joining us for this episode and sharing their thoughts on the lack of specialised support available to women who have had children removed from their care. And thank you to listening to our podcast. We want this series to help erase the stigma that surrounds women who have had children removed from their care. We hope that everyone who listens to this series will feel inspired to seek out more understanding and knowledge on the topic. We also want to send a message of support to other women that are in our situation so that they know they're not alone want to encourage them to seek support and make their voices heard. We'll be back soon with another podcast episode, but in the meantime, if you want to find out more about Pause, just go to pause.org.uk or find us on Twitter or Instagram at pause.org. Until next time, thank you.